How y'all doing there? So I'd like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. <laughs> look, before we get started, I need y'all to strap on your back braces or your petticoats. Maybe you need to stabilize yourself because we got a good talk here for y'all here tonight. Before we get started, y'all always know, like, tell y'all what I'm smoking on. Now, tonight, I'm smoking on a dead wood, fat bottom Betty Cordido. Man, let me tell you something. Now, I don't know, rightly know when I picked this stick up here, but let me tell you, this was a surprisingly good stick to me. But before I tell y'all what I think about this stick, y'all always know I like to tell y'all what these folks say, okay? Now, this fat bottom Betty Cordido, the Deadwood Tobacco Company, fat bottom Betty Cordido cigar is another Martin and Edge blend in the famous Drew Estate brand portfolio. This Nicaraguan Puro features Drew Estate signature blend of Cuban seed tobaccos, covered by a very dark and oily Maduro wrapper. Y'all know I like these Maduros. This expertly rolled, slow-burning beauty displays rich, medium, to full-bodied notes of chocolate, dark roast, coffee, earth, dried fruit, and hints of pepper. The sweet smoke aroma will captivate those nearby. Let me tell you something. This right here was one of the first sticks that I ever, as soon as I lit, 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 lit this thing up, I tasted something sweet on my lips. You see, that's when I, I get my, when I know when the cigar is good to me, I can light up. And as soon as it hit my lips, I can taste some notes and flavors in it. Now, a lot of times I tell y'all now what these folks say, I don't, I don't be recognizing all these stuff they be talking about, fruits, nuts, nuts and chocolate and roses and stuff like that. But when I find this little dead wood up here, this bottom bedding, let me tell you something. I tasted that sweetness. You know, I taste that sweetness. And uh, my buddy say, he say, I guess it's something, some kind of sweet, um, uh, uh, some kind of sweet paste or something like that that they put on the top of a cigar to keep it from unwrapping. You know, almost like a, 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 a what's that, what's that stuff you put on your lip? Almost like a chapstick. It's a sweet like chapstick stuff like that they put on top of a sweet a cigar to keep it from unraveling. But let me tell you, I tasted that sweetness all the way through this stick. This was a surprisingly good stick to me. Now, I don't know about dark chocolate and all that other stuff like that, but I know it had a nice sweet taste, and it was a good stick. It started out kind of medium, and then as I got up there, it didn't turn to full. But I really enjoyed this thing. It was surprisingly good. Now, usually I don't smoke anything too much from Drew Estates now. Not that they're a bad cigar. I don't know too much about them. Now, I do go down there in the Corona down there in Orlando. I love to go in the Corona, especially downtown Orlando. There's a nice place, a nice view down there. If y'all ever come down to Orlando and you like these cigars, let me tell you, first stop you got to stop at is Corona Drew Estate here. I really enjoy it. Now, I have to back up. Because uh, the Aladino, I like the Aladino, but I don't think the Aladino is by Drew Estates. <coughs> Excuse me. I just ate breakfast. I don't think that's by Drew Estate, the Aladino. But that's where I first had my first Aladino. I got it from uh, down in Sand Lake, Corona down there. That's a good stick. But this stick here, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to buy me a few more of these. And the price point is pretty good, too. It's, I mean, it's around about $7, $8 for the price point. Like right now, I'm looking at JR Cigars, and they got like a box of 10. Their price is $79.95, like a $22 saving. 
But this is a really good stick. I really enjoyed this stick. Like if I wanted a quick stick, you know, you know, something that, you know, not too big, something that uh, it probably about a good hour, hour and a half smoke for somebody like me. This was a good stick. And I really tasted that sweetness in it. And I really enjoyed this stick. So with all these fragrance and aromas and full bodies and dark roasted coffee blend, dried fruit and hints of pepper, all that stuff combined, this was a good stick for the price point. And I'm going to buy a few more of these for my humidor because I really enjoyed it. But look here, tonight we're going to talk about something that's in the forefront of all our minds. We're going to talk about the police, the pow-pow, as they say back in the day. This is what, because right now I'm hearing all this stuff about people talking about defund the police. And we're hearing all this police brutality and stuff like that. But let me tell you something. This ain't nothing new. Ain't nothing new with police brutality. Every race of people has done deal with police brutality. The problem is, and let me tell you something, what they're doing to black folks, always been going on. Ain't nothing new. The only thing new is they got cameras now. Now people in the whole world can see what's going on. Because let me tell you something, my uncle, <clears throat> I, I got had uh, three uncles. They were, they were triplets. Uncle Leo, Leon, and Leroy, right? Uncle Leroy had got out of, <coughs> excuse me, Uncle Leroy got out of prison, Tax State Penitentiary. This was round about, I would say, probably about 60, probably about 67, 68, 67. Yeah, 68, 67, he had got out of prison. And uh, down there in Bucky, Louisiana, and he was walking downtown, the police shot him in the back, killed him dead, shot him in the back, right? And my grandmama sued you know, the, the, you know, the little city of Bunking, and she couldn't get no police service for years after she sued. But see, she didn't have to, she, she didn't have to get no police service. See what I'm saying? My granddad was back that, back, living back at that time. She knew the police, police service because my, my granddaddy was meaner than a rattlesnake. Ain't nobody messing with my granddaddy. Even the police was scared of him when he found out they shot his son in the back. They, they, that, they didn't go to court. They paid that little money quick. See what I'm saying? But the thing about it was after she sued the police, she couldn't get no service. But she didn't really need no service. Ain't nobody bothered my grandmama down there bunking. Because Paul Paul, Paul Paul would lit you up. My dad, my granddad was a grave digger. That's how he knew everybody in town. And plus back then it wasn't no high crime in the community. The community was beautiful back then. Because we didn't have all them cracks and the drugs, haddock, and all that kind of stuff. That most you had was the more oil heads, the more liquor head people, and people that drunk that drunk that alcohol. And they had their little jug joint, but they ain't bothered nobody. See what I'm saying? But police brutality and police shooting for African Americans or black people, whatever y'all want to call it these days, ain't nothing new. And let me tell y'all something too. This is surprise, surprise, surprise. White police officers kill white folks too. The only thing about it is you don't hear it on the news. Like that boy in Arizona. Y'all ain't nobody heard about that boy. The boy in Arizona was the white boy in Arizona was in a hotel room. The SWAT team was called into the hotel room. Called to the hotel. Police knocked on the door. Told the boy to come out, get on his knees, put his hands behind his head, and crawl on the floor like a dog. And the police had, the, the SWAT team had the gun trained on him. Now, this is something recent here. Last year, y'all don't know about it because the media, because it, it wasn't no black, it wasn't no police shooting no black person. The boy crawled on the floor. His girlfriend standing there crying. Don't shoot him, don't shoot him. The white, the cop told him to lay down on the floor. He laid on the floor, hands behind his head. And the police shot him in the back. White boy shot him in the back. Y'all ain't hear nothing about that, did y'all? Because it wasn't what the media want y'all to get all upset about. You hear nothing about that. 
But you know, y'all, I'm about to start getting on the road right now. But I just want to tell y'all now, we're going to take a look at police from a historical point of view. Because when I look at things, I don't look at things just locally here. What's going on here in this country? I like to get a bigger scope on what's going on. Then I like to take a look. I like to go back in the past. I like to get on my way back machine and go back in the past, take a look at these things. So I want to look at police when police first started. And then we're going to bring it all the way up to here. Because, see, I heard this one, this one boy, he was on TV, and he was saying that, he said, when, um, when Americans look at history and we were taught history, we only taught history from an American perspective. We're not taught world history. He said, you go to other countries, when they learn about history, they learn about world history, global history. But see, our history, we only get, we only get history taught to us through a bird light, through, through a bird's eye view. Well, not a bird's eye view, because a bird can look anywhere which way. You know, which way. We only we don't look at things with blinders on. That's how they teach us with blinders on. Only American history. See, that's why y'all know nothing about slavery. Every race has been enslaved. Every race has been enslaved. And slavery here was no more horrific than any other place around the world. No, no place. But see, but we're only looking at things at our view. So what we're going to do here, we're going to take a look at police right now. We're going to take a look, look at police from a historical point of view. And we're going to bring it all the way up to now to this defund the police thing, which is one of the craziest things I ever heard. But it's not being stated right when they say defund the police. So I'm going to give y'all a few scenarios because I'm not the type of person who just talk about the problem. I had to give y'all my perspective too because one day I'm going to run for Congress. When I run for Congress, I'm going to be giving a lot of subsidies and economic subsidies to these manufacturers to come in to build plants they ain't going to build. Then I'm going to get my little money and I'm going to take off all the office and y'all can leave taxpayers with the bill. <laughs> I'll be messing with y'all. But look here. I'm going to kick back here with my fat boy, Betty Cordotti. And I'm going to smoke on this thing while y'all take a listen to this. And I'm going to come back and catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right now. Let's take a world, historical look at police, then, the cry to defund them. The police are a constituted body of persons empowered by a state, with the aim to enforce the law, to ensure the safety, health, and possessions of citizens, and to prevent crime and civil disorder. Their lawful powers include arrest and the use of force legitimized by the state via the monopoly on violence. The term is most commonly associated with the police forces of a sovereign state that are authorized to exercise the police power of that state within a defined legal or territorial area of responsibility. Police forces are often defined as being separate from the military and other organizations involved in the defense of the state against foreign aggressors, however, gendarmerie are military units charged with civil policing. Police forces are usually public sector services, funded through taxes. Law enforcement is only part of policing activity. Policing has included an array of activities in different situations, but the predominant ones are concerned with the preservation of order. In some societies, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, these developed within the context of maintaining the class system and the protection of private property. Police forces have become ubiquitous in modern societies. Nevertheless, their role can be controversial, as some are involved to varying degrees in corruption, police brutality, and the enforcement of authoritarian rule. A police force may also be referred to as a police department police service, constabulary, gendarmerie, crime prevention, protective services, law enforcement agency, civil guard, or civic guard. Members may be referred to as police officers, troopers, sheriffs, constables, rangers, peace officers, or civic-slash-civil guards. Ireland differs from other English-speaking countries by using the Irish language terms Garda, singular, and Garda, plural, for both the national police force and its members. 
the word police is the most universal and similar terms can be seen in many non-English speaking countries. Numerous slang terms exist for the police. Many slang terms for police officers are decades or centuries old with lost etymology. One of the oldest, cop, has largely lost its slang connotations and become a common colloquial term used both by the public and police officers to refer to their profession. Etymology. First attested in English in the early 15th century, initially in a range of senses encompassing, public, policy, state, public order, the word police comes from Middle French police, public order, administration, government, in turn from Latin politia, which is the Latinization of the Greek citizenship, administration, civil polity. This is derived from city. History. Ancient policing. Law enforcement in ancient China was carried out by prefects for thousands of years since it developed in both the Chu and Jin kingdoms of the spring and autumn period. In Jin, dozens of prefects were spread across the state, each having limited authority and employment period. They were appointed by local magistrates, who reported to higher authorities such as governors, who in turn were appointed by the emperor, and they oversaw the civil administration of their prefecture, or jurisdiction. Under each prefect were sub-prefects who helped collectively with law enforcement in the area. Some prefects were responsible for handling investigations, much like modern police detectives. Prefects could also be women. Local citizens could report minor judicial offenses against them such as robberies at a local prefectural office. The concept of the prefecture system spread to other cultures such as Korea and Japan. In Babylonia, law enforcement tasks were initially entrusted to individuals with military backgrounds or imperial magnates during the old Babylonian period, but eventually, law enforcement was delegated to officers known as Puk, Dus, who were present in both cities and rural settlements. Apuk, Du was responsible for investigating petty crimes and carrying out arrests. In ancient Egypt evidence of law enforcement exists as far back as the Old Kingdom period. There are records of an office known as Judge Commandant of the Police dating to the 4th Dynasty. During the 5th Dynasty at the end of the Old Kingdom period, officers armed with wooden sticks were tasked with guarding public places such as markets, temples, and parks, and apprehending criminals. They are known to have made use of trained monkeys, baboons, and dogs in guard duties and catching criminals. After the Old Kingdom collapsed, ushering in the first intermediate period, it is thought that the same model applied. During this period, Bedouins were hired to guard the borders and protect trade caravans. During the Middle Kingdom period, a professional police force was created with a specific focus on enforcing the law, as opposed to the previous informal arrangement of using warriors as police. The police force was further reformed during the New Kingdom period. Police officers served as interrogators, prosecutors, and court bailiffs, and were responsible for administering punishments handed down by judges. In addition, there were special units of police officers trained as priests who were responsible for guarding temples and tombs and preventing inappropriate behavior at festivals or improper observation of religious rites during services. Other police units were tasked with guarding caravans, guarding border crossings, protecting royal necropolises, guarding slaves at work or during transport, patrolling the Nile River, and guarding administrative buildings. The police did not guard rural communities, which often took care of their own judicial problems by appealing to village elders, but many of them had a constable to enforce state laws. In ancient Greece, publicly owned slaves were used by magistrates as police. In Athens, a group of 300 Scythian slaves was used to guard public meetings to keep order and for crowd control, and also assisted with dealing with criminals, handling prisoners, and making arrests. Other duties associated with modern policing, such as investigating crimes, were left to the citizens themselves. 18 in Sparta, a secret police force called the Cryptea existed to watch the large population of helots, or slaves. In the Roman Empire, the army, rather than a dedicated police organization, initially provided security. Local watchmen were hired by cities to provide some extra security. 
magistrates such as procurators fiscal and quaestors investigated crimes. There was no concept of public prosecution, so victims of crime or their families had to organize and manage the prosecution themselves. Under the reign of Augustus, when the capital had grown to almost one million inhabitants, 14 wards were created, the wards were protected by seven squads of 1,000 men called vigils, who acted as firemen and night watchmen. Their duties included apprehending thieves and robbers, capturing runaway slaves, guarding the baths at night, and stopping disturbances of the peace. The vigils primarily dealt with petty crime, while violent crime, sedition, and rioting was handled by the urban cohorts and even the Praetorian Guard if necessary, though the vigils could act in a supporting role in these situations. Law enforcement systems existed in the various kingdoms and empires of ancient India. The Apastamba Dharma Sutra prescribes that kings should appoint officers and subordinates in the towns and villages to protect their subjects from crime. Various inscriptions and literature from ancient India suggest that a variety of roles existed for law enforcement officials such as those of a constable, thief catcher, watchman, and detective. The Persian Empire had well-organized police forces. A police force existed in every place of importance. In the cities, each ward was under the command of a superintendent of police, known as a coopan, who was expected to command implicit obedience in his subordinates. Police officers also acted as prosecutors and carried out punishments imposed by the courts. They were required to know the court procedure for prosecuting cases and advancing accusations. In ancient Israel and Judah, officials with the responsibility of making declarations to the people, guarding the king's person, supervising public works, and executing the orders of the courts existed in the urban areas. They are repeatedly mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, and this system lasted into the period of Roman rule. The first-century Jewish historian Josephus related that every judge had two such officers under his command. Levites were preferred for this role. Cities and towns also had night watchmen. Besides officers of the town, there were officers for every tribe. The temple in Jerusalem had special temple police to guard it. The Talmud also mentions various local police officials in the Jewish communities the land of Israel and Babylon who supervised economic activity. Their Greek-sounding titles suggest that the roles were introduced under Hellenic influence. Most of these officials received their authority from local courts and their salaries were drawn from the town treasury. The Talmud also mentions city watchmen and mounted and armed watchmen in the suburbs. In many regions of pre-colonial Africa, particularly West and Central Africa, guild-like secret societies emerged as law enforcement. In the absence of a court system or written legal code, they carried out police-like activities, employing varying degrees of coercion to enforce conformity and deter antisocial behavior. In ancient Ethiopia, armed retainers of the nobility enforced law in the countryside according to the will of their leaders. The Songhai Empire had officials known as Asaramunidios, or enforcers, acting as police. Pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilizations also had organized law enforcement. The city-states of the Maya civilization had constables known as Tupils, as well as bailiffs. In the Aztec Empire, judges had officers serving under them who were empowered to perform arrests, even of dignitaries. In the Inca Empire, officials called Curica enforced the law among the households they were assigned to oversee, with inspectors known as Tocoyrecoque, also, stationed throughout the provinces to keep order. Post-classical policing. The Santos Hermandades of medieval Spain were formed to protect pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago. In medieval Spain, Santos Hermandades, or Holy Brotherhoods, peacekeeping associations of armed individuals, were a characteristic of municipal life, especially in Castile. As medieval Spanish kings often could not offer adequate protection, protective municipal leagues began to emerge in the 12th century against banditry and other rural criminals, and against the lawless nobility or to support one or another claimant to a crown. These organizations were intended to be temporary, but became a long-standing fixture of Spain. The first recorded case of the formation of an hermandad occurred when the towns and the peasantry of the north united to police the pilgrim road to Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, and protect the pilgrims against robber knights.
Throughout the Middle Ages such alliances were frequently formed by combinations of towns to protect the roads connecting them, and were occasionally extended to political purposes. Among the most powerful was the League of North Castilian and Basque Ports, the Hermandad de las Marismas, Toledo, Talavera, and Villarreal. As one of their first acts after end of the War of the Castilian Succession in 1479, Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile established the centrally organized and efficient Holy Brotherhood as a national police force. They adapted an existing brotherhood to the purpose of a general police acting under officials appointed by themselves, and endowed with great powers of summary jurisdiction even in capital cases. The original brotherhoods continued to serve as modest local police units until their final suppression in 1835. The Vemic courts of Germany provided some policing in the absence of strong state institutions. Such courts had a chairman who presided over a session and lay judges who passed judgment and carried out law enforcement tasks. Among the responsibilities that lay judges had were giving formal warnings to known troublemakers, issuing warrants, and carrying out executions. In the medieval Islamic caliphates, police were known as shurda. Bodies termed shurda existed perhaps as early as the caliphate of Uthman. It is known in the Abbasid and Umayyad caliphates. Their primary roles were to act as police and internal security forces but could also be used for other duties such as customs and tax enforcement, rubbish collection, and acting as bodyguards for governors. From the 10th century, the importance of the Shurta declined as the army assumed internal security tasks while cities became more autonomous and handled their own policing needs locally, such as by hiring watchmen. In addition, officials called Matasibs were responsible for supervising bazaars and economic activity in general in the medieval Islamic world. In France during the Middle Ages, there were two great officers of the Crown of France with police responsibilities, the Marshal of France and the Grand Constable of France. The military policing responsibilities of the Marshal of France were delegated to the Marshal's Provost, whose force was known as the Marshalsi because its authority ultimately derived from the Marshal. The Marshalsi dates back to the Hundred Years' War, and some historians trace it back to the early 12th century. Another organization, the Constabulary, French, Canitable, was under the command of the Constable of France. The constabulary was regularized as a military body in 1337. Under Francis I of France, who reigned 1515 to 1547, the Maracasi was merged with the constabulary. The resulting force was also known as the Maracasi, or, formally, the constabulary and Marshalsi of France. The English system of maintaining public order since the Norman conquest was a private system of tithings known as the mutual pledge system. This system was introduced under Alfred the Great. Communities were divided into groups of ten families called tithings each of which was overseen by a chief tithingman. Every household head was responsible for the good behavior of his own family and the good behavior of other members of his tithing. Every male aged 12 and over was required to participate in a tithing. Members of tithings were responsible for raising hue and cry upon witnessing or learning of a crime, and the men of his tithing were responsible for capturing the criminal. The person the tithing captured would then be brought before the chief tithingman, who would determine guilt or innocence and punishment. All members of the criminal's tithing would be responsible for paying the fine. A group of ten tithings was known as a hundred and every hundred was overseen by an official known as a reeve. Hundreds ensured that if a criminal escaped to a neighboring village, he could be captured and returned to his village. If a criminal was not apprehended, then the entire hundred could be fined. The hundreds were governed by administrative divisions known as shires, the rough equivalent of a modern county, which were overseen by an official known as a shire reeve, from which the term sheriff evolved. The shire reeve had the power of posse comitatus, meaning he could gather the men of his shire to pursue a criminal. Following the Norman conquest of England in 1066, the tithing system was tightened with the Frank Pledge system. By the end of the 13th century, the office of constable developed. Constables had the same responsibilities as chief tithing men and additionally as royal officers. The constable was elected by his parish every year. Eventually, 
constables became the first police official to be tax-supported. In urban areas, watchmen were tasked with keeping order and enforcing nighttime curfew. Watchmen guarded the town gates at night, patrolled the streets, arrested those on the streets at night without good reason, and also acted as firefighters. Eventually the Office of Justice of the Peace was established, with the Justice of the Peace overseeing constables. There was also a system of investigative juries. The Assize of Arms of 1252, which required the appointment of constables to summon men to arms, quell breaches of the peace, and to deliver offenders to the sheriff or reeve, is cited as one of the earliest antecedents of the English Police 31. The Statute of Winchester of 1285 is also cited as the primary legislation regulating the policing of the country between the Norman Conquest and the Metropolitan Police Act 1829. From about 1500, private watchmen were funded by private individuals and organizations to carry out police functions. They were later nicknamed Charlies, probably after the reigning monarch King Charles II. Thief-takers were also rewarded for catching thieves and returning the stolen property. The earliest English use of the word police seems to have been the term polls mentioned in the book The Second Part of the Institutes of the Laws of England published in 1642. Early Modern Policing The first centrally organized and uniformed police force was created by the government of King Louis XIV in 1667 to police the city of Paris, then the largest city in Europe. The Royal Edict registered by the Parliament of Paris on March 15, 1667 created the office of Lieutenant General de Police, Lieutenant General of Police, who was to be the head of the new Paris police force, and defined the task of the police as ensuring the peace and quiet of the public and of private individuals, purging the city of what may cause disturbances, procuring abundance, and having each and everyone live according to their station and their duties. This office was first held by Gabriel Nicolas de Lorraine, who had 44 commissaires de police, police commissioners, under his authority. In 1709, these commissioners were assisted by inspectors de police, police inspectors. The city of Paris was divided into 16 districts policed by the commissaires, each assigned to a particular district and assisted by a growing bureaucracy. The scheme of the Paris police force was extended to the rest of France by a royal edict of October 1699, resulting in the creation of lieutenants general of police in all large French cities and towns. After the French Revolution, Napoleon I reorganized the police in Paris and other cities with more than 5,000 inhabitants on February 17, 1800 as the Prefecture of Police. On March 12, 1829, a government decree created the first uniformed police in France, known as Sergents de Ville, City Sergeants, which the Paris Prefecture of Police's website claims were the first uniformed policemen in the world. In 1737, George II began paying some London and Middlesex watchmen with tax monies, beginning the shift to government control. In 1749 Henry Fielding began organizing a force of quasi-professional constables known as the Bow Street Runners. The McDaniel affair added further impetus for a publicly salaried police force that did not depend on rewards. Nonetheless, in 1828, there were privately financed police units in no fewer than 45 parishes within a 10-mile radius of London. The word police was borrowed from French into the English language in the 18th century, but for a long time it applied only to French and continental European police forces. The word and the concept of police itself, were disliked as a symbol of foreign oppression, according to Britannica 1911. Before the 19th century, the first use of the word police recorded in government documents in the United Kingdom was the appointment of commissioners of police for Scotland in 1714 and the creation of the Marine Police in 1798. Modern Police Scotland and Ireland Following early police forces established in 1779 and 1788 in Glasgow, Scotland, the Glasgow authorities successfully petitioned the government to pass the Glasgow Police Act establishing the city of Glasgow Police in 1800. Other Scottish towns soon followed suit and set up their own police forces through Acts of Parliament. In Ireland, 
the Irish Constabulary Act of 1822 marked the beginning of the Royal Irish Constabulary. The Act established a force in each barony with chief constables and inspectors general under the control of the civil administration at Dublin Castle. By 1841 this force numbered over 8,600 men. London. In 1797, Patrick Calhoun was able to persuade the West Indies merchants who operated at the Pool of London on the River Thames, to establish a police force at the docks to prevent rampant theft that was causing annual estimated losses of £500,000 worth of cargo. The idea of a police, as it then existed in France, was considered as a potentially undesirable foreign import. In building the case for the police in the face of England's firm anti-police sentiment, Calhoun framed the political rationale on economic indicators to show that a police dedicated to crime prevention was perfectly congenial to the principle of the British Constitution. Moreover, he went so far as to praise the French system, which had reached the greatest degree of perfection in his estimation. With the initial investment of £4,200, the new trial force of the Thames River Police began with about 50 men charged with policing 33,000 workers in the river trades, of whom Calhoun claimed 11,000 were known criminals and on the game. The force was a success after its first year, and his men had established their worth by saving £122,000 worth of cargo and by the rescuing of several lives. Word of this success spread quickly, and the government passed the Marine Police Bill on July 28, 1800, transforming it from a private to public police agency, now the oldest police force in the world. Calhoun published a book on the experiment, the commerce and policing of the River Thames. It found receptive audiences far outside London, and inspired similar forces in other cities, notably, New York City, Dublin, and Sydney. Calhoun's utilitarian approach to the problem, using a cost-benefit argument to obtain support from businesses standing to benefit, allowed him to achieve what Henry and John Fielding failed for their Bow Street detectives. Unlike the stipendiary system at Bow Street, the River Police were full-time, salaried officers prohibited from taking private fees. His other contribution was the concept of preventive policing, his police were to act as a highly visible deterrent to crime by their permanent presence on the Thames. Calhoun's innovations were a critical development leading up to Robert Peel's new police three decades later. Metropolitan Police Force London was fast reaching a size unprecedented in world history, due to the onset of the Industrial Revolution. It became clear that the locally maintained system of volunteer constables and watchmen was ineffective, both in detecting and preventing crime. A parliamentary committee was appointed to investigate the system of policing in London. Upon Sir Robert Peel being appointed as Home Secretary in 1822, he established a second and more effective committee, and acted upon its findings. Royal assent to the Metropolitan Police Act 1829 was given and the Metropolitan Police Service was established on September 29, 1829 in London as the first modern and professional police force in the world. Peel, widely regarded as the father of modern policing, was heavily influenced by the social and legal philosophy of Jeremy Bentham, who called for a strong and centralist, but politically neutral, police force for the maintenance of social order, for the protection of people from crime and to act as a visible deterrent to urban crime and disorder. Peel decided to standardize the police force as an official paid profession, to organize it in a civilian fashion, and to make it answerable to the public. Due to public fears concerning the deployment of the military in domestic matters, Peel organized the force along civilian lines, rather than paramilitary. To appear neutral, the uniform was deliberately manufactured in blue, rather than red which was then a military color, along with the officers being armed only with a wooden truncheon and a rattle to signal the need for assistance. Along with this, police ranks did not include military titles, with the exception of sergeant. To distance the new police force from the initial public view of it as a new tool of government repression, Peel publicized the so-called Peelian principles, which set down basic guidelines for ethical policing. Every police officer should be issued a warrant card with a unique identification number to assure accountability for his actions. 
whether the police are effective is not measured on the number of arrests but on the deterrence of crime. Above all else, an effective authority figure knows trust and accountability are paramount. Hence, Peel's most often quoted principle that the police are the public and the public are the police. The 1829 Metropolitan Police Act created a modern police force by limiting the purview of the force and its powers, and envisioning it as merely an organ of the judicial system. Their job was apolitical, to maintain the peace and apprehend criminals for the courts to process according to the law. This was very different from the continental model of the police force that had been developed in France, where the police force worked within the parameters of the absolutist state as an extension of the authority of the monarch and functioned as part of the governing state. In 1863, the Metropolitan Police were issued with the distinctive custodian helmet, and in 1884 they switched to the use of whistles that could be heard from much further away. The Metropolitan Police became a model for the police forces in many countries, such as the United States, and most of the British Empire. Bobbies can still be found in many parts of the Commonwealth of Nations. Other countries. Australia. In Australia, the first police force having central east command as well as jurisdiction over an entire colony was the South Australia Police, formed in 1838 under Henry Inman. However, whilst the New South Wales Police Force was established in 1862, it was made up from a large number of policing and military units operating within the then colony of New South Wales and traces its links back to the Royal Marines. The passing of the Police Regulation Act of 1862 essentially tightly regulated and centralised all of the police forces operating throughout the colony of New South Wales. The New South Wales Police Force remains the largest police force in Australia in terms of personnel and physical resources. It is also the only police force that requires its recruits to undertake university studies at the recruit level and has the recruit pay for their own education. Brazil. In 1566, the first police investigator of Rio de Janeiro was recruited. By the 17th century, most captaincies already had local units with law enforcement functions. On July 9, 1775 a cavalry regiment was created in the state of Minas Gerais for maintaining law and order. In 1808, the Portuguese royal family relocated to Brazil, because of the French invasion of Portugal. King João VI established the Intendência Geral de Polícia, General Police Intendency, for investigations. He also created a royal police guard for Rio de Janeiro in 1809. In 1831, after independence, each province started organizing its local military police, with order maintenance tasks. The Federal Railroad Police was created in 1852, Federal Highway Police, was established in 1928, and Federal Police in 1967. Canada Established in 1729, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, RNC, was the first policing service founded in Canada. The establishment of modern policing services in the Canadas occurred during the 1830s, modeling their services after the London Metropolitan Police, and adopting the ideas of the Peelian principles. The Toronto Police Service was established in 1834, whereas the service de police de la ville de Quebec was established in 1840. A national police service, the Dominion Police, was founded in 1868. Initially the Dominion Police provided security for Parliament, but its responsibilities quickly grew. In 1870, Rupert's Land and the Northwestern Territory were incorporated into the country. In an effort to police its newly acquired territory, the Canadian government established the Northwest Mounted Police in 1873, renamed Royal Northwest Mounted Police in 1904. In 1920, the Dominion Police, and the Royal Northwest Mounted Police were amalgamated into the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. The RCMP provides federal law enforcement, and law enforcement in eight provinces, and all three territories. The provinces of Ontario, and Quebec maintain their own provincial police forces, the Ontario Provincial Police, OP, and the Chirrut du Quebec, SQ. Policing in Newfoundland and Labrador is provided by the RCMP, and the RNC. 
The aforementioned services also provides municipal policing, although larger Canadian municipalities may establish form their own police service. Lebanon In Lebanon, modern police were established in 1861, with creation of the gendarmerie. India In India, the police are under the control of respective states and union territories and is known to be under state police services, SBS. The candidates selected for the SBS are usually posted as Deputy Superintendent of Police or Assistant Commissioner of Police once their probationary period ends. On prescribed satisfactory service in the SBS, the officers are nominated to the Indian Police Service. The service color is usually dark blue and red, while the uniform color is khaki. United States In British North America, policing was initially provided by local elected officials. For instance, the New York Sheriff's Office was founded in 1626, and the Albany County Sheriff's Department in the 1660s. In the colonial period, policing was provided by elected sheriffs and local militias. In the 1700s, the province of Carolina, later North and South Carolina, established slave patrols in order to prevent slave rebellions and enslaved people from escaping. For example, by 1785 the Charleston Guard and Watch had a distinct chain of command, uniforms, sole responsibility for policing, salary, authorized use of force, and a focus on preventing crime. In 1789 the United States Marshal Service was established, followed by other federal services such as the U.S. Parks Police, 1791, and U.S. Mint Police, 1792.64 The first city police services were established in Philadelphia in 1751, Richmond, Virginia in 1807, Boston in 1838, and New York in 1845. The U.S. Secret Service was founded in 1865 and was for some time the main investigative body for the federal government. In the American Old West, law enforcement was carried out by local sheriffs, rangers, constables, and federal marshals. There were also town marshals responsible for serving civil and criminal warrants, maintaining the jails, and carrying out arrests for petty crime. In recent years, in addition to federal, state, and local forces, some special districts have been formed to provide extra police protection in designated areas. These districts may be known as neighborhood improvement districts, crime prevention districts, or security districts. Development of Theory Michel Foucault claims that the contemporary concept of police as a paid and funded functionary of the state was developed by German and French legal scholars and practitioners in public administration and statistics in the 17th and early 18th centuries, most notably with Nicolas Delamare's Trait de la Police, Treatise on the Police, first published in 1705. The German Police Wissenschaft, Science of Police, first theorized by Philipp von Hornicke, a 17th century Austrian political economist and civil servant and much more famously by Johann Heinrich Gottlob Justi who produced an important theoretical work known as Cameral Science on the Formulation of Police. Foucault cites Magdalene Humpert author of Bibliographie der Cameral Wissenschaften, 1937, in which the author makes note of a substantial bibliography was produced of over 4,000 pieces of the practice of Police Wissenschaft however, this may be a mistranslation of Foucault's own work The actual source of Magdalene Humpert states over 14,000 items were produced from the 16th century dates ranging from 1520 to 1850. As conceptualized by the Polizia Wissenschaft, according to Foucault the police had an administrative, economic, and social duty, procuring abundance. It was in charge of demographic concerns and needed to be incorporated within the Western political philosophy system of raison d'etat and therefore giving the superficial appearance of empowering the population, and unwittingly supervising the population, which, according to mercantilist theory, was to be the main strength of the state. Thus, its functions largely overreached simple law enforcement activities and included public health concerns, urban planning, which was important because of the miasma theory of disease, thus, cemeteries were moved out of town, etc., and surveillance of prices. Jeremy Bentham, philosopher who advocated for the establishment of preventive police forces and influenced the reforms of Sir Robert Peel. 
The concept of preventive policing, or policing to deter crime from taking place, gained influence in the late 18th century. Police magistrate John Fielding, head of the Bow Street Runners, argued that, it is much better to prevent even one man from being a rogue than apprehending and bringing 40 to justice. The utilitarian philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, promoted the views of Italian Marquis Cesare Beccaria, and disseminated a translated version of Essay on Crime and Punishment. Bentham espoused the guiding principle of the greatest good for the greatest number. It is better to prevent crimes than to punish them. This is the chief aim of every good system of legislation, which is the art of leading men to the greatest possible happiness or to the least possible misery, according to calculation of all the goods and evils of life. Patrick Calhoun's influential work, A Treatise on the Police of the Metropolis, 1797, was heavily influenced by Benthamite thought. Calhoun's Thames River Police was founded on these principles, and in contrast to the Bow Street Runners, acted as a deterrent by their continual presence on the riverfront, in addition to being able to intervene if they spotted a crime in progress. Edwin Chadwick's 1829 article, Preventive Police in the London Review, argued that prevention ought to be the primary concern of a police body, which was not the case in practice. The reason, argued Chadwick, was that a preventive police would act more immediately by placing difficulties in obtaining the objects of temptation. In contrast to a deterrent of punishment, a preventive police force would deter criminality by making crime cost ineffective, crime doesn't pay. In the second draft of his 1829 Police Act, the object of the new Metropolitan Police, was changed by Robert Peel to the principal object, which was the prevention of crime. Later historians would attribute the perception of England's appearance of orderliness and love of public order to the preventive principle entrenched in Peel's police system. Development of modern police forces around the world was contemporary to the formation of the state, later defined by sociologist Max Weber as achieving a monopoly on the legitimate use of physical force and which was primarily exercised by the police and the military. Marxist theory situates the development of the modern state as part of the rise of capitalism, in which the police are one component of the bourgeoisie's repressive apparatus for subjugating the working class. By contrast, the Peelian principles argue that the power of the police is dependent on public approval of their existence, actions, and behavior, a philosophy known as policing by consent. Personnel and Organization Police forces include both preventive, uniformed, police and detectives. Terminology varies from country to country. Police functions include protecting life and property, enforcing criminal law, criminal investigations, regulating traffic, crowd control, public safety duties, civil defense, emergency management, searching for missing persons, lost property, and other duties concerned with public order. Regardless of size, police forces are generally organized as a hierarchy with multiple ranks. The exact structures and the names of rank vary considerably by country. Uniformed Police Brazilian Federal Highway Police at Work the police who wear uniforms make up the majority of a police services personnel. Their main duty is to respond to calls to the emergency telephone number. When not responding to these callouts, they will do work aimed at preventing crime, such as patrols. The uniformed police are known by varying names such as preventive police, the uniform branch slash division, administrative police, order police, the patrol bureau slash division or patrol. In Australia and the United Kingdom, patrol personnel are also known as general duties officers. Atypically, Brazil's preventive police are known as military police. As implied by the name, uniformed police wear uniforms. They perform functions that require an immediate recognition of an officer's legal authority and a potential need for force. Most commonly this means intervening to stop a crime in progress and securing the scene of a crime that has already happened. Besides dealing with crime, these officers may also manage and monitor traffic, carry out community policing duties, maintain order at public events or carry out searches for missing people, in 2012, the latter accounted for 14% of police time in the United Kingdom.
as most of these duties must be available as a 24-7 service, uniformed police are required to do shift work. Detectives? Unmarked police cars may be used by detectives or officers to carry out their duties unnoticed by the public, pictured here in Sydney, Australia. Police detectives are responsible for investigations and detective work. Detectives may be called investigations police, judiciary slash judicial police, and criminal police. In the UK, they are often referred to by the name of their department, the Criminal Investigation Department, CID. Detectives typically make up roughly 15 to 25% of a police services personnel. Detectives, in contrast to uniformed police, typically wear business attire in bureaucratic and investigative functions where a uniformed presence would be either a distraction or intimidating, but a need to establish police authority still exists. Plainclothes officers dress in attire consistent with that worn by the general public for purposes of blending in. In some cases, police are assigned to work undercover, where they conceal their police identity to investigate crimes, such as organized crime or narcotics crime, that are unsolvable by other means. In some cases this type of policing shares aspects with espionage. The relationship between detective and uniformed branches varies by country. In the United States, there is high variation within the country itself. Many U.S. police departments require detectives to spend some time on temporary assignments in the patrol division citation needed the argument is that rotating officers helps the detectives to better understand the uniformed officers work, to promote cross-training in a wider variety of skills, and prevent cliques that can contribute to corruption or other unethical behavior conversely, some countries regard detective work as being an entirely separate profession, with detectives working in separate agencies and recruited without having to serve in uniform. A common compromise in English-speaking countries is that most detectives are recruited from the uniformed branch, but once qualified they tend to spend the rest of their careers in the detective branch. Another point of variation is whether detectives have extra status. In some forces, such as the New York Police Department and Philadelphia Police Department, a regular detective holds a higher rank than a regular police officer. In others, such as British police forces and Canadian police forces, a regular detective has equal status with regular uniformed officers. Officers still have to take exams to move to the detective branch, but the move is regarded as being a specialization, rather than a promotion. Volunteers and Auxiliary Police Police services often include part-time or volunteer officers, some of whom have other jobs outside policing. These may be paid positions or entirely volunteer. These are known by a variety of names, such as reserves, auxiliary police, or special constables. Other volunteer organizations work with the police and perform some of their duties. Groups in the U.S. including Retired and Senior Volunteer Program, Community Emergency Response Team and the Boy Scouts Police Explorers provide training, traffic, and crowd control, disaster response and other policing duties. In the U.S., the Volunteers in Police Service Program assists over 200,000 volunteers in almost 2,000 programs. Volunteers may also work on the support staff. Examples of these schemes are Volunteers in Police Service in the U.S., Police Support Volunteers in the U.K. and Volunteers in Policing in New South Wales. Specialized Units Specialized Preventive and Detective Groups, or Specialist Investigation Departments exist within many law enforcement organizations either for dealing with particular types of crime, such as traffic law enforcement, canine, crash investigation, homicide, or fraud, or for situations requiring specialized skills, such as underwater search, aviation, explosive device disposal, bomb squad, and computer crime. Most larger jurisdictions also employ specially selected and trained quasi-military units armed with military-grade weapons for the purposes of dealing with particularly violent situations beyond the capability of a patrol officer response, including high-risk warrant service and barricaded suspects. In the United States these units go by a variety of names, but are commonly known as SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics, Teams. In counterinsurgency-type campaigns, 
select and specially trained units of police armed and equipped as light infantry have been designated as police field forces who perform paramilitary type patrols and ambushes whilst retaining their police powers in areas that were highly dangerous. Because their situational mandate typically focuses on removing innocent bystanders from dangerous people and dangerous situations, not violent resolution, they are often equipped with non-lethal tactical tools like chemical agents, flashbang and concussion grenades, and rubber bullets. The Specialist Firearms Command, CO-19, of the Metropolitan Police in London is a group of armed police used in dangerous situations including hostage-taking, armed robbery-slash-assault and terrorism. Administrative Duties Police may have administrative duties that are not directly related to enforcing the law, such as issuing firearms licenses. The extent that police have these functions varies among countries, with police in France, Germany and other continental European countries handling such tasks to a greater extent than British counterparts. Military Police a section of the military solely responsible for policing the armed forces, referred to as provosts. A section of the military responsible for policing in both the armed forces and in the civilian population, most gendarmeries, such as the French Gendarmerie, the Italian Carabinieri, the Spanish Guardia Civil and the Portuguese Republican National Guard also known as GNR. A section of the military solely responsible for policing the civilian population, such as the Romanian Gendarmerie. The Civilian Preventive Police of a Brazilian State, Policia Milita. A special military law enforcement service, like the Russian military police. Religious police. Two members of the Taliban religious police, AMRBIL Maruf, or Department for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice, beating a woman for removing her burqa in public. Some Islamic societies have religious police, who enforce the application of Islamic Sharia law. Their authority may include the power to arrest unrelated men and women caught socializing, anyone engaged in homosexual behavior or prostitution, to enforce Islamic dress codes, and store closures during Islamic prayer time. They enforce Muslim dietary laws, prohibit the consumption or sale of alcoholic beverages and pork, and seize banned consumer products and media regarded as un-Islamic, such as CDs-DVDs of various Western musical groups, television shows and film. In Saudi Arabia, the Mutaween actively prevent the practice or proselytizing of non-Islamic religions within Saudi Arabia, where they are banned. International Policing Most countries are members of the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, established to detect and fight transnational crime and provide for international cooperation and coordination of other police activities, such as notifying relatives of the death of foreign nationals. Interpol does not conduct investigations or arrests by itself, but only serves as a central point for information on crime, suspects and criminals. Political crimes are excluded from its competencies. The terms international policing, transnational policing, and slash or global policing began to be used from the early 1990s onwards to describe forms of policing that transcended the boundaries of the sovereign nation-state, Nadelman, 1993, Sheptiki, 1995. These terms refer in variable ways to practices and forms for policing that, in some sense, transcend national borders. This includes a variety of practices, but international police cooperation, criminal intelligence exchange between police agencies working in different nation-states, and police development aid to weak, failed or failing states are the three types that have received the most scholarly attention. Historical studies reveal that policing agents have undertaken a variety of cross-border police missions for many years, Diflam, 2002. For example, in the 19th century a number of European policing agencies undertook cross-border surveillance because of concerns about anarchist agitators and other political radicals. A notable example of this was the occasional surveillance by Prussian police of Karl Marx during the years he remained resident in London. The interests of public police agencies in cross-border cooperation in the control of political radicalism and ordinary law crime were primarily initiated in Europe, which eventually led to the establishment of Interpol before the Second World War. 
There are also many interesting examples of cross-border policing under private auspices and by municipal police forces that date back to the 19th century, Nadelman, 1993. It has been established that modern policing has transgressed national boundaries from time to time almost from its inception. It is also generally agreed that in the post-Cold War era this type of practice became more significant and frequent, Sheptiki, 2000. Not a lot of empirical work on the practices of inter-slash-transnational information and intelligence sharing has been undertaken. A notable exception is James Sheptiki's study of police cooperation in the English Channel region, which provides a systematic content analysis of information exchange files and a description of how these transnational information and intelligence exchanges are transformed into police casework. The study showed that transnational police information sharing was routinized in the cross-channel region from 1968 on the basis of agreements directly between the police agencies and without any formal agreement between the countries concerned. By 1992, with the signing of the Schengen Treaty, which formalized aspects of police information exchange across the territory of the European Union, there were worries that much, if not all, of this intelligence sharing was opaque, raising questions about the efficacy of the accountability mechanisms governing police information sharing in Europe. Studies of this kind outside of Europe are even rarer, so it is difficult to make generalizations, but one small-scale study that compared transnational police information and intelligence sharing practices at specific cross-border locations in North America and Europe confirmed that low visibility of police information and intelligence sharing was a common feature. Intelligence-led policing is now common practice in most advanced countries and it is likely that police intelligence sharing and information exchange has a common morphology around the world. James Sheptiki has analyzed the effects of the new information technologies on the organization of policing intelligence and suggests that a number of organizational pathologies have arisen that make the functioning of security intelligence processes in transnational policing deeply problematic. He argues that transnational police information circuits help to compose the panic scenes of the security control society. The paradoxical effect is that, the harder policing agencies work to produce security, the greater are feelings of insecurity. Police development a too weak, failed or failing states is another form of transnational policing that has garnered attention. This form of transnational policing plays an increasingly important role in United Nations peacekeeping and this looks set to grow in the years ahead, especially as the international community seeks to develop the rule of law and reform security institutions in states recovering from conflict with transnational police development aid the imbalances of power between donors and recipients are stark and there are questions about the applicability and transportability of policing models between jurisdictions. Perhaps the greatest question regarding the future development of transnational policing is, in whose interest is it, citation needed at a more practical level, the question translates into one about how to make transnational policing institutions democratically accountable for example, According to the Global Accountability Report for 2007 Interpol had the lowest scores in its category, IGOS, coming in 10th with a score of 22% on overall accountability capabilities as this report points out, and the existing academic literature on transnational policing seems to confirm, this is a secretive area and one not open to civil society involvement. Equipment. Weapons. In many jurisdictions, police officers carry firearms, primarily handguns, in the normal course of their duties. In the United Kingdom, except Northern Ireland, Iceland, Ireland, Norway, New Zealand, and Malta, with the exception of specialist units, officers do not carry firearms as a matter of course. Norwegian police carry firearms in their vehicles, but not on their duty belts, and must obtain authorization before the weapons can be removed from the vehicle. Police often have specialist units for handling armed offenders, and similar dangerous situations, and can, depending on local laws, in some extreme circumstances, call on the military, since military aid to the civil power is a role of many armed forces. Perhaps the most high-profile example of this was, in 1980 the Metropolitan Police handing control of the Iranian embassy siege to the Special Air Service. They can also be armed with non-lethal, 
more accurately known as less than lethal or less lethal given that they can still be deadly weaponry, particularly for riot control. Non-lethal weapons include batons, tear gas, riot control agents, rubber bullets, riot shields, water cannons and electroshock weapons. Police officers typically carry handcuffs to restrain suspects. The use of firearms or deadly force is typically a last resort only to be used when necessary to save human life, although some jurisdictions, such as Brazil, allow its use against fleeing felons and escaped convicts. American police are allowed to use deadly force simply if they think their life is in danger. A shoot-to-kill policy was recently introduced in South Africa, which allows police to use deadly force against any person who poses a significant threat to them or civilians. With the country having one of the highest rates of violent crime, President Jacob Zuma states that South Africa needs to handle crime differently from other countries. Communications Modern police forces make extensive use of two-way radio communications equipment, carried both on the person and installed in vehicles, to coordinate their work, share information, and get help quickly. In recent years, vehicle-installed mobile data terminals have enhanced the ability of police communications, enabling easier dispatching of calls, criminal background checks on persons of interest to be completed in a matter of seconds, and updating officers' daily activity log and other, required reports on a real-time basis. Other common pieces of police equipment include flashlights-slash-torches, whistles, police notebooks and ticket books or citations. Some police departments have developed advanced computerized data display and communication systems to bring real-time data to officers, one example being the NYPD's Domain Awareness System. Vehicles Police vehicles are used for detaining, patrolling, and transporting. The average police patrol vehicle is especially modified, four-door sedan. Police vehicles are usually marked with appropriate logos and are equipped with sirens and flashing light bars to aid in making others aware of police presence. Unmarked vehicles are used primarily for sting operations or apprehending criminals without alerting them to their presence. Some police forces use unmarked or minimally marked cars for traffic law enforcement, since drivers slow down at the sight of marked police vehicles and unmarked vehicles make it easier for officers to catch speeders and traffic violators. This practice is controversial, with for example, New York State banning this practice in 1996 on the grounds that it endangered motorists who might be pulled over by people impersonating police officers. Motorcycles are also commonly used, particularly in locations that a car may not be able to reach, to control potential public order situations involving meetings of motorcyclists and often in escort duties where motorcycle police officers can quickly clear a path for escorted vehicles. Bicycle patrols are used in some areas because they allow for more open interaction with the public. Bicycles are also commonly used by riot police to create makeshift barricades against protesters. In addition, their quieter operation can facilitate approaching suspects unawares and can help in pursuing them attempting to escape on foot. Police forces use an array of specialty vehicles such as helicopters, airplanes, watercraft, mobile command posts, vans, trucks, all-terrain vehicles, motorcycles, and armored vehicles. Other safety equipment. Police cars may also contain fire extinguishers, or defibrillators. Strategies. The advent of the police car, two-way radio, and telephone in the early 20th century transformed policing into a reactive strategy that focused on responding to calls for service. With this transformation, police command and control became more centralized. In the United States, August Vollmer introduced other reforms, including education requirements for police officers. O.W. Wilson, a student of Vollmer, helped reduce corruption and introduce professionalism in Wichita, Kansas, and later in the Chicago Police Department. Strategies employed by O.W. Wilson included rotating officers from community to community to reduce their vulnerability to corruption, establishing of a nonpartisan police board to help govern the police force, a strict merit system for promotions within the department, and an aggressive recruiting drive with higher police salaries to attract professionally qualified officers. During the professionalism era of policing, 
law enforcement agencies concentrated on dealing with felonies and other serious crime and conducting visible car patrols in between, rather than broader focus on crime prevention. The Kansas City Preventive Patrol study in the early 1970s showed flaws in this strategy. It found that aimless car patrols did little to deter crime and often went unnoticed by the public. Patrol officers in cars had insufficient contact and interaction with the community, leading to a social rift between the two. In the 1980s and 1990s, many law enforcement agencies began to adopt community policing strategies, and others adopted problem-oriented policing. Broken windows policing was another, related approach introduced in the 1980s by James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling, who suggested that police should pay greater attention to minor quality-of-life offenses and disorderly conduct. The concept behind this method is simple, broken windows, graffiti, and other physical destruction or degradation of property create an environment in which crime and disorder is more likely. The presence of broken windows and graffiti sends a message that authorities do not care and are not trying to correct problems in these areas. Therefore, correcting these small problems prevents more serious criminal activity.